0: David, I think that horn section ate some, had a little extra coffee this morning. They were blaring right there. Y'all did good. Sounded good, guys. If you've got a copy of God's word, I'm going to ask you to open to the book of 1 Peter. We've been going through a journey through Peter's letter, first letter to the exiles of Asia Minor. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be talking about the subject marching orders for kingdom exiles. so last week, as we've already said when we were in our greeting this morning that we saw a very empowering verse of scripture which speaks to our identity as a people of God, that we are chosen by by God to be a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation, the people belonging to God, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him, that we can publicly proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Well today we're going to build on that identity as the church and as the people of God as as Peter now turns from some some theological implications that he's been talking about in the first chapter and a half to some practical application. So the first the first bit that we've been looking at is laying a theological foundation for what it means to be kingdom exiles. As kingdom exiles, we've been redeemed by God, we've been saved by the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, but we're also called to be a part of the church, the people of God. And now he's going to turn in these next couple of chapters to some very practical instruction for what that means. That if we are kingdom exiles, what does that look like in our day-to-day life? And we see even in the beginning of, of verse 11, where we're, which starts our text today, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. I want us to stop there for a second and think about this. Again, this word sojourners and exiles or aliens. Peter takes us back to this tension that we feel as followers of Jesus Christ in this world. It's why we call this kingdom exiles with living hope is that One of the four recurring themes that we said when we started this series that's going to continue to pop up is this theme of exile, this theme of sojourn, this theme of of being a, a temporary, transient person in a world that is not really our home. And we said that all true Christians are kingdom exiles or kingdom citizens living in exile in a fallen world. And yes, we are natural citizens of an earthly nation, but we are also, first and foremost, spiritual citizens of the kingdom of God. And this word sojourner, which he uses here, is a a word that's used to speak of someone who is traveling through a land that is not their home. And as we continue to unpack these verses over the next couple of chapters, we're going to see that because we are sojourners, because we are really kind of out of place in a fallen world now, we feel this constant tension in in who we are and how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to proclaim the excellencies of him to a lost and dying world. And in doing that, the natural persecution or alienation or marginalization that's going to come from being a follower of Jesus Christ. As we continue to to live differently and proclaim the gospel to people who don't understand the gospel, that that's going to create a very natural tension. And sometimes it's going to create suffering or persecution. Sometimes it's going to create marginalization. Sometimes it's going to create tension between us and co-workers or neighbors or even family members. It's precisely what what Peter is telling us here, is it's precisely because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the personal spiritual implications that come from following him that was why Peter's readers were experiencing persecution and harassment from the people around them. It's precisely because they had been transformed by the gospel and they had a different set of values and priorities and they worshiped a different God. It's because of that that they were experiencing the suffering that they were going through. They rejected the polytheistic religions of their day. They denied that the emperor was God. They said that, that our, our allegiance to Jesus Christ will not allow us to, to worship another God, and so we cannot worship the emperor as deity. And because of that, they they felt the persecution for that. They rejected the pagan practices that once defined them before becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Many of these people that Peter is writing to, they, they had never heard of the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They never heard of Yahweh, the one true God. They, they had grown up in, in regions that that worshiped false gods, and because they worshiped false gods, they participated in, in practices that, that gave worship or, or allegiance to that god. But once they heard the gospel and believed the gospel, they could no longer do that. There was a change in their, in their, in their life and in their behavior. And because of that, they rejected those practices that once defined them. As we read through this letter of 1 Peter, it reminds us of this truth, which is that allegiance to Jesus as Lord is going to cause enmity with the world. Let me say that again. Allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord is going to cause enmity and strife with the world. Because this world is presently being ruled under a different God and under a different set of values. And so I want us to read verses 11 through 17 as we begin to see some practical application of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in our world. Verse 11 again says, Beloved, I urge you. This word urge is is, is a strong appeal on the part of the Apostle Peter. He's about to tell us that there's going to be something that needs to be different in our lives. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In these verses, Peter turns to some very critical instructions for us as kingdom exiles about how we are to live in light of the gospel truth that he has shown us. In light of this this redemption, in light of the truth that God has caused us, as we read in in chapter 1, verse 3, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope that is undefiled and imperishable. And in light of the truth that God has called us to be living stones in a new temple called the church, that we are a chosen people for his possession, in light of those, then we must demonstrate the glory of salvation and being his redeemed people in two critical areas. And so as redeemed kingdom exiles, may the quality of our daily lives be an accurate reflection of the glory of Of the gospel. That's what he's saying here. As those who've been redeemed and as those who no longer are really defined by this world, may the quality of our daily lives be an accurate reflection to the world of the glory of the gospel that has saved us. And he really challenges us in two critical arenas that I want us to look at this morning. The first of those is our example before a lost world, the believer's example before a lost world. He covers these in verses 11 and 12. We read them just a second ago. Peter challenges his readers to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the way you choose to conduct yourself before a lost and dying world. That we have have a responsibility to oversee our conduct before the world around us. It's the goal of our public witness for Jesus Christ. Now the word Gentile here is a term used in the New Testament for people who who do not understand the gospel. We understand that in Judaism Gentile meant that those who were non-Jews, but specifically it meant those who were outside of the covenant of God. And so in in Old Testament days and in the first century when Jesus was there, if someone was a Gentile, it meant that they were not not ethnically a Jew. They were born outside of the covenant of Abraham, and therefore they were not part of God's people. And there were different rules for Gentiles than there were for Jews. It was this entire separation. But in the New Testament, God uses that term Gentile and adopts it into the language of the church to help us to understand that this refers to people who don't understand, don't follow, don't adhere to God. Peter's audience was mostly made up of non-Jewish people, people who were ethnically Gentiles, but they were not only Gentiles in their ethnic heritage, but they were formerly Gentiles in their understanding of the gospel. And the same is true of you and me. Once we were outside of God's covenant of grace, once we were lost and as such we were aliens and strangers to the good news of the gospel and the promise of of salvation. We were Gentiles. We we didn't fall under the covenant of God's people. We had not been saved and redeemed. But now we've had a total change of spiritual identity. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've had a point in your life where you've trusted in Christ, where you've believe the gospel, and by faith you've, you've trusted in what Christ has done for you, you've now had a change of spiritual identity. That's why Paul tells us we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their understanding. That, that you're no longer identified by that term. You see, God sends those who were once lost and alienated from God but have now been saved by the gospel, he sends those people back out into a lost world to be public demonstrations of the power of the gospel and public witnesses to the truth of the gospel. God uses us as a demonstration, an example to people of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. In essence, Paul is saying in verses 11 and 12, your public witness matters your public witness is crucial. You need to steward your conduct before a lost and dying world. You need to examine the example that you present to people who do not know Christ and ask yourself this, is my conduct, is the way that I conduct myself before people who don't know Christ, is it Honorable is it, a, is it in such a way that it brings honor to the Lord Jesus Christ and it creates within others a desire to know Him? It's the believer's example before a lost world. It's a reminder to us that choices in our lives have consequences and for the follower of Jesus Christ, public choices have spiritual consequences. Let me say that again. Public choices have spiritual consequences. The Bible tells us when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you are to glorify God with your body. You're to set about using your life as an example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to glorify Him in your actions. We see this over and over and over again in scriptures. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul challenges Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine closely. Don't just pay attention to having all the right answers spiritually, but make sure that your life matches what you testify that you believe. Paul challenged the church at Rome to not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't allow your life to be conformed to the world's patterns of living, but be transformed, be different. And Jesus even instructed us as his followers to let our light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Your public witness matters. And he gives them a challenge really in two areas. The first of those is this, don't be defined by your unbridled passions any longer. Don't be defined by your unbridled passions any longer. I urge you, he says, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Don't be defined by unbridled passion anymore. The structure of this sentence is basically suggesting a, a causal action that it's because we are sojourners and exiles, it's because we don't belong any longer to this world, it's precisely because of that that you and I must make conscious choices to abstain from living with unbridled passions of the flesh that once marked us and were characteristic of us before we became followers of Christ. And that are characteristic of people who feel at home in this world. In other words, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago we we shared the illustration that you don't live that way any longer. You remember that I shared the the the, the illustration of a of a pastor that I heard once time one time who who had recently moved houses and he had he'd moved to a different part of town and when he would leave his office. Before that, he would always turn right to go home, but now he had to turn left, and he would constantly find himself coming to the red light and turning right and then reminding himself, you don't live that way anymore. And he would have to turn around and go the other way. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We no longer live at that spiritual address anymore. We've had a change of identity, a change of spiritual location. We are now in Christ. And as a result, we can no longer be defined by unbridled passions that mark people who feel at home in this world. And it's hard because we don't feel at home in this world. And the more we engage with those practices that once defined us, the more tension we're going to feel that there's something not right about this. It means we change the the passionate pursuits of our heart. It means we change our affections and the things that that we love most. It means that we, we say, you know what, there are certain qualities that should be characteristic of people who belong to God and there are certain choices that we say, you know what, this just doesn't fit with a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul instructed... The believers in Colossae, to put to death whatever is earthly in you. Put to death sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire. Put those things to death. They should not be marked in your life anymore. He instructed the believers in Ephesus to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is being corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You have had a change of identity. Put off the old self. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Romans 6, let not sin reign therefore in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Galatians chapter 5, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy, for us to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Paul says here, I urge you to abstain from these passions. And look at the next word he uses there, which wage war against your soul. Did you know that every single day that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a battle for purity in your life every single day? Every single day, there's a battle for purity. There's a battle going on against your spiritual spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit inside of you, and the spiritual reality of your life, and the fallen flesh which still wants to be defined by pursuing its passion. Every single day that battle is going on. And every single day you feel that tension. And simply put, the life of a believer and a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be marked by a separation of ourselves from the unbridled pursuit of the passions of our flesh. The life of a Christian is not to be marked by continual self-indulgence, but it's to be marked by self-denial and self-sacrifice in following the Lord Jesus Christ. The life of a Christian is not to be marked by greedy consumption and the pursuits of the lust of the flesh. The life of a Christian is not to be marked by gossip and and callous speech or pride. And even at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says that we're to put away things such as malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. These things are not to be part of the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. These are marks of unbridled passion. And so he says, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to choose not to be defined by your unbridled passions any longer. It's not about, it's not about what, you, what, you, uh, what you participate in. It's not, about, it's not about what you feed yourself with and what you enjoy and being identified by the same things that the world loves. There should be something different about our life. But secondly, he says, we need to commit to being a public demonstration to others of gospel transformation. We need to commit to being a public demonstration of gospel transformation. This is what he means when he says in verse 12 that we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The word honorable here is often translated good, but the the Greek word used here is stronger than the normal Greek word used for good. It goes beyond just trying to live a good life or a life of ethical righteousness. He's not saying that you need to try to live a good life in front of your fellow neighbors and coworkers. He's saying that we need to live a life that is commended by others because of its nobility and its attractiveness. It's not just about being a good person. You know, when I became a follower of Jesus Christ, it's pretty much what was told to me is, is now you need to be a good person and make good choices and don't make bad choices and, and just be a good person in front of other people. But it's not what he's talking about here. He's not just talking about good. He's talking about living a life that is so connected to Jesus that people who don't understand the gospel see the nobility of your life and the attractiveness of your life, and they want what you have. That's what it means to keep your conduct honorable. As people see the nobility of our lives, it should create in them a hunger for Christ and a hunger for his righteousness. But let's ask ourselves, let's do a report card on that. How do you think we're doing in the world today when it comes to living lives that are honorable and attractive and appealing before a lost and dying world? How do you think the church is doing today? Probably not very good, are we? Over and over again, when people who don't adhere to the gospel, who don't go to church, when unchurched and lost people are are often asked, what words would you use to define Christians? What's the number one word that they use? Hypocrite, right? Hypocrites and self-righteous. Now, I think that that's... Probably, that's, that's what Paul is alluding to, Peter is alluding to here when he says, when they speak evil against you. That's just natural. I, I don't think we will ever get away in the Christian life from a certain sense of people who don't know Christ thinking that we are self righteous. It comes with the territory, it comes with living a distinctive life that says, I used to be that way, but because of Christ, I can't do that anymore. When you do that, here's one of the things. Light exposes darkness, right? And so the more light of the gospel that we demonstrate in our life, the more we expose the darkness of people around us. You ever ever had a shirt that had a stain on it and you didn't know it until you went into another room and when you went in the room and the light was brighter, you could see the stain that you couldn't see? In the other room, that's what happens. The more light, the more exposure of what's going on. And sometimes that's going to come across to other people as a self-righteousness. We just need to make sure that it's not coming across as self-righteous because of our attitude. But the number one term that's used most of the time of Christians in our culture today are hypocrites and self-righteous people who want to impose their religious beliefs on others. And I think the reason for that is, is that for many of us, we have dumbed down the idea of Christianity to just being a good person who lives a moral life. And what they see sometimes is a disconnect between how we live and what we believe. Because the reality of it is, is that none of us can live a completely moral life. We're going to fail, we're going to fall, we're going to make decisions that are regrettable. We're going to lose our temper. We're going, to, we're going to have weaknesses of the flesh. And we need to make sure that the quality of our life before a lost and dying world is of such attractiveness that even in those moments when we fail, they still see the fact that our lives are lived with a certain sense of nobility and excellence and attractiveness. The reality of it is, is that when people see your daily life and my daily life, It either creates a hunger in them to know what it is that causes us to live that way, or it creates a repulsion in them that doesn't want anything to do with us. That's what he's talking about here. That we need to keep the conduct of our lives before a lost and dying world honorable. Now he says, when they speak of you as evildoers, speaking exactly of the expectation of slander from those who don't share our faith. You see, slander and malignment are favored weapons of unbelievers. They love to vilify Christians and paint us as self-righteous do-gooders. And we should not be surprised when they do, and we should not take it personally when they do. But Peter's counter is that we should, when pagans do resort to slandering us, we should counter their slander with more good deeds and a life that is so attractive that on the day when Jesus Christ returns, those very same pagans will give glory to God for the way that we lived before them. Some of you may have experienced this as a follower of Jesus Christ where you had a, maybe a family member or a, or a co-worker or a neighbor who didn't, who didn't believe in Christ, who wasn't a Christian, who didn't share your values. But, but over time, they would say to you, you know what, one thing I noticed about you is that you just, you just always live differently. I didn't understand it, but, but the more I watched your life, the more I realized there was something in you that was different than other people. I remember when my father came to faith in Christ, that was one of the things that was a big deal for, for him was that there were many people that he worked with that were Christians who whose life was really no different than that of my father. But there were a couple of men who worked in the same place that he did, the same post office that he did. And the way that they conducted themselves was differently. They didn't, they didn't laugh at the crude jokes. They didn't tell the crude jokes. They they didn't participate in some of the conversations. They, they lived their lives with a certain sense of attractiveness that I believe was one of the reasons why my father came to faith in Christ. So first we see the believer's example before a lost world, but secondly, we see the believer's attitude towards authority. A second critical area that you and I need to examine is our attitude towards authority. Now, in verse 13, he's going to shift, and basically over the next several verses into almost all of chapter 13, he's going to talk about submission. He's going to talk about submission, to the government, he's going to talk about submission to masters, and he's going to talk about submission of wives to husbands, and we're going to talk about those later. But in this idea of submission, he's talking about the way we as believers express our attitude towards God-given authority. Verse 13 says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be... To the emperor as supreme or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. Now, here's here's something I want to give you, a little little hermeneutical principle, okay? Whenever you see the Bible say, this is the will of God, underline it. Because all the time we go, I just want to know what God's will is. I just want to know what God's will is. I just want to know what God's will is. Well, the Holy Spirit is telling you right now, this is the will of God, okay? Okay? So if you got a pen, underline it. Put this in practice. This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. A second place where you and I demonstrate the glory of salvation to a lost and dying world is in our response to authority. In our lives, Peter says that we are to submit to all God-given forms of human authority. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What does that mean? It means that God has placed natural authority structures in our world and that every one of us live under certain authority structures. And we are to We are, as people of God, we are to show an attitude of submission to the natural authorities that God has placed in our lives and we're to do it for the Lord's sake. What does that mean? It means that your submission to the authority that God has placed in your life is a reflection of your submission to God. Your submission to the natural authority God has placed is a reflection of your submission to God. So did you know that a person who has a submission problem to authority is a person who has an idolatry problem. A person who has a problem submitting to authority is a person who is worshiping the wrong God. Because when we don't submit to the institutions that God has placed in our lives, then we are not being submissive to Him. Instead, we are living as though we were our own God. Submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And he gives us two practical ways that we do that. Number one, submit to God's good purposes for government. Submit to God's good purposes for government. Now, there are natural authority institutions in our lives, and just because we live in a fallen world, none of those authority structures are perfect. And there are going to be times when you grow up in an imperfect family structure or an imperfect government. But we need to learn to submit as God's people to God's good purposes for government. The word submit here means to arrange one's life under the authority and guidance of another, it's to purposefully and willingly arrange your life. Under the blanket of authority and guidance that God has placed in your life. And here's the problem we don't naturally like submission in our culture because we see the word submit as a stifling of human freedom. But submission is not a stifling of freedom, submission is living out the freedom of Christ under the willing yielding of our life to the natural authorities that God has placed. Over us and one of the most important ones is our response to government it's interesting because we can't help but read this this scripture about being submitted to emperors and governors and submission to government without the without the lens of the the world in which we live in the 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 nation in which we live in and so we read this through a, a constitutional declaration of independence type lens but we need to remember that in Peter's day when Peter was calling believers to submit to government, it was very different than the government that you and I enjoy today. The government of the exiles that Peter was writing to was one of a world power that ruled by domination. You see, the people in in Peter's day did not live under the blanket of a representative government that was elected by popular vote. In, In their culture, the emperor was sovereign. And the empire demanded personal allegiance. And Peter's readers were feeling an increasing tension between the values of the occupying nation of Rome and the values of the kingdom of God. And they're the same tensions that you and I feel in our culture today. Submission is not a popular notion in a culture that values personal independence and individualistic freedom as its highest virtues. We're a nation that was born under the fight for independence and freedom from tyrannical rule. And so we value freedom. And our freedom is seen as a personal inherent right and submission sounds like some form of subjugation or enslavement. But We need to be careful about that. We need to be careful that our first and foremost allegiance is not to the red, white, and blue, but it is to the kingdom of God and to understand that God has built our world with natural authority structures to which we must all learn to submit. God gave you a family structure in your life to shape us when we are young. And God has government structures in our life that are given to us to promote good and to punish evil. And we have workplace structures that provide sound policies for employment and business. And we have the spiritual authority of the church to whom we gladly submit our lives to one another and and to whom we submit for our personal spiritual growth. We're to learn submission to all of these, including that of government. Because our submission to civil authority is grounded in our primary and ultimate submission and allegiance to God. And ultimately, the reason for our submission to government is not to avoid trouble And not to avoid persecution, but to bring honor to our king. That's what he says here when he says that you should submit to the emperor or to governors. For the will of God is that by doing good, you would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We're to make known his greatness and to trust in him by our willing obedience to the government that he has placed us under. So not only do we need to submit to God's good purposes for government, not only do we need to be good citizens of the nation to which God has placed us, but we need to live in spiritual freedom as a willing slave to the Lord. We need to live in the, in the beauty of our spiritual freedom in Christ, but we do so as a willing servant or slave to the Lord. That's what he says here in verse 16, to live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Peter anticipates the response of his readers who, as he would say to them, you need to submit to God's good purpose of government, that government exists to to punish evil and to promote good. He, he, He understands their natural response, which is going to be, but when we became followers of Jesus Christ, we're part of his kingdom now, and our allegiance is to him as king, not to the emperor as king. And he understands that. He's affirming that. But he says, you need to live as people who are spiritually free, but you should not use that spiritual freedom in Christ as a cover-up for rebellion against the government that God has placed you in. You shouldn't use your freedom as followers of Jesus Christ, as, as, as some sort of evil intent to have your way when the government tells you something that you shouldn't like. And because of this, in many ways, you and I are called to live with much more honor in our lives than those around us, including those who govern us. One of the great tensions that we have in the in being followers of Jesus Christ is that many times those people who are elected officials don't always understand or value the same values that we do. And so sometimes we feel like, especially in a, in a nation that was born out of civil disobedience, we feel like we need to rebel against things that we don't like. But we need to be careful when we do that because we don't want to use our freedom or even the truth of the gospel as a cover-up for rebellion against authority. There's this tension in the Christian life that you and I are spiritually free, yet we are willing servants of the Lord. We are redeemed, we are, we are changed, we are saved. We have experienced a change of allegiance in, in, in our sovereigns, but, and we understand that this world is no longer our permanent home and no longer our final destination. However, for the time being, we are still expatriates and sojourners who operate in submission to the laws of the land in which we reside. Martin Luther once wrote, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none... And a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all. There is a time and a place for civil disobedience in the Christian life. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a responsibility to question laws that violate God's word or endorse sin. We are called by God to disobey any human law that would cause us to renounce Christ or his word. And we are called as Followers of Jesus Christ to use any and all resources at our disposal to change the laws of our land to reflect biblical values. But we are not called to use our spiritual freedom as a cover-up for personal rebellion. Peter finally summarizes this idea of submission to authority and by giving us a fourfold command that should govern our human relationships. He says, really, if you want to see what this looks like in action, here's four practical things that you and I need to do. Number one, honor all people. Honor all people. What does that mean? It means that we need to treat every person with the respect due to someone who bears the image of God. Let me say that again. We need to treat every person with the respect that is due to someone who bears the image of God. And if you do that, some of you need to stop posting things on Facebook. Because sometimes we say things about people that we disagree with that we shouldn't be saying about somebody who bears the image of God. They may be on the other side politically of an issue from us, but just because they're on the other side of the aisle does not mean that God has removed his image from them. It does not mean that their life is not worth immense value in his sight. We need to honor all people. And we may disagree on politics and we may disagree on preferences, but we should always treat every person that God places in our life with honor and respect. And Too much of our life in our culture today is spent in divisiveness and only choosing to honor those people who are like us and like the things that we like. But God's people should be better than that. We should honor all people. But we should also honor the state. That's what he means when he says to honor the emperor at the end of the verse. We should show respect and honor for our elected officials and not just those whom we voted for. Every time we have an election and we're about to enter into a really, really difficult election cycle again, and this toxicity in our culture is going to come up, and every single time I see this, I just weep over the things that I see in the evangelical church and the way that we speak about people who disagree with us politically. And we need to be careful when whatever your political view is, when the person you didn't vote for gets elected as president, you need to be careful about this, that's not my president stuff. Because they are your president. And that does not, the fact that you didn't vote for that person does not take away the command in 2 Timothy to offer prayers for all people, including those in authority over us. And we need to remember that no matter how bad the person occupying the White House is, the emperor in Peter's day when he wrote this to honor the emperor was the Emperor Nero who was probably one of the least honorable world leaders that ever existed. Within about five years of of writing this, Nero would have Christians, the people that, that Peter was writing to burned in the city of Rome to light the streets. And yet Peter says, honor the emperor, honor the state, love the church, love the church. And it's important that we know the difference between honoring the state and loving the church. We're called to honor the state and love the church, not to love the state and honor the church. We're to have our deepest affections in life for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should love the church above all other institutions. And finally, we should fear God, and we should fear God supremely. This word fear is a word that is born out of affection and reverence. It's a reminder to us of 1 Peter 1.17 when Peter says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are to, we are to show a supreme affection and reverence to God. And sometimes that's going to mean that we are going to have to make choices that are in opposition to the state, that we're to make choices that are in opposition to the government. Sometimes that may mean that we need to gather together as followers of Jesus Christ and and lobby for certain laws to be passed and to speak against certain laws that are being proposed. Those are all natural things we should do. But we should never do so in such a way that is dishonorable, and we should always do so with a fear and a reverence for our Lord Jesus Christ. In summary... These marching orders for kingdom exiles are not given to us as religious rules designed to make us righteous people. These marching orders are the natural expectations of people who have experienced the life-transforming grace of God and salvation. If you've ever trusted the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've ever heard the good news and by faith trusted in Jesus to save you, then there should be a, a natural understanding in your life that you need to live as an example of gospel transformation before a fallen world. That your life matters and your choices matter and the things that you do matter. And you should, of all people, if you've been redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, understand submission to God's government and God's authorities in our life. And may we be found faithful according to the word of God. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? We're going to enter into a time of... Invitation and an opportunity for you to respond to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reality of it is, is that for many of us in here, the idea of of submission to authority should not be hard, but for someone who's never truly experienced the grace of God and salvation, the idea of submitting to anyone is a hard thing. Because ultimately our war is not just against flesh and blood, it's not just against the passions of our flesh, ultimately our war is against the sin inside of us. And if you've never truly trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your battle today is not against government. Your battle today is not against the passions of your flesh. The battle that you are experiencing today is against God. So in just a moment, we're going to offer you an opportunity to trust in Jesus Christ, to submit your life, to surrender, to lay down your arms and to say, Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. If you're here today, I encourage you to, to make that decision to, to follow him. Maybe you need to come today for some other reason. Maybe you need to come for prayer. Or maybe God is leading you to be a part of Central Park Baptist Church. Whatever it is, whatever God's spirit is speaking to you today, be obedient to him. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. God, that you didn't you didn't just save us and leave the rest of this life up to us, but you've given us specific instructions about how we are to live that we're to live lives that are honorable, that we're to live lives that are, that are reflective of the glory of the gospel that has changed us. God, may you give us the strength to do so today. And God, speak to each one of us here. And if anyone's here and needs to know you as Lord and Savior, speak that to them this morning in a very real and tangible way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, sing this song, and respond as the Lord would have you this morning.